Welcome to the New Books Network. Two. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and today we'll be joined by Hei-Yi Chu, who is the author of The Life of Permafrost, A History of Frozen Earth in Russian and Soviet Science, published by University of Toronto Press in 2021. Welcome, Peiyi, and thanks for join, joining us today. Thank you for having me, Stephen. So uh, here we have um, Dr. Chu, who is an associate professor of history at Pomona College, where she teaches courses in modern European history. A historian of Russia and the Soviet Union, she received her PhD from Princeton University. Her research aims to understand the environment and environmental change through the history of science and technology. This focus has led her to explore such topics as the history of the earth sciences, science policy, the politics of expertise, and the transnational circulation of ideas. Hei has held fellowships at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies and the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society. Um, and her work has appeared in environmental history and environment and history. So we're really happy to be able to cross post this on our new books channels, Russian and Eurasian studies, environmental studies, as well as history and geography. So I want to start, um, Dr. Chu, simply with a question about what brought you to this topic, the life of permafrost. How did you become interested in researching the book? Yeah, so I came to the topic um, via a pretty meandering path. I went to grad school in uh, for Russian history, and I was initially, you know, interested in the kind of in betweenness of of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, um, kind of straddling the Eurasian uh, continent. I was initially interested in researching, you know, the economic development of Eastern Siberia because I felt that, you know, there wasn't much that was really known about it, and um, and it seemed to me that there were really interesting particularities of that region that, that, that I didn't know about. So I got started reach, researching um, the history of the construction of this railroad called the Baikal Amur Mainline. And as I was kind of digging into the sources, the topic that kept coming up or, or the, um, a subject that kept coming up in the sources was this phenomenon um, which in the Russian sources is called Vietnamese and is uh, later called permafrost. So, um, and I was very curious about what what this was. <laughs> I was like Vietnamese what a curious, curious um, you know expression. You know, Vietnam means eternal, and Mirs Lata, well, it's a little bit ambiguous what that means, but you know, one way of understanding is like eternal frozen earth. And so I was very curious about what it was, and sort start kind of digging into the meaning of this concept and um, how people understood this phenomenon and discovered that there were all these interesting debates about <laughs> what it was, um, why we needed to study it, um, how it was related to the surrounding environment, and kind of just fell down that rabbit hole. And and along the way, I you know, became aware and interested in these subfields of history, you know, environmental history, the history of science, like Kind of subfields that I hadn't really known about as an undergrad and became very curious about as I started to, you know, want to learn more about this phenomenon of frozen earth. So 
um, it was a bit of a kind of meandering path. And yeah, I eventually just fell down this rabbit hole and, and, you know, eventually, I guess, wrote a book about it. So let's talk about permafrost and permafrostology and the history of science and technology studies. How do you understand the study of permafrost historically? How do you understand its change over time? Right. So, um, well, I, I wanted to treat permafrost not, you know, I didn't want to take it for granted as something that was, you know, timeless, universal, natural, just this neutral object of the environment. Um, I wanted to look at the history of, you know, different understandings that people had about frozen earth and, and even contested understandings about frozen earth and see how they changed over time. Um, and so the story begins, well, a little bit in the 18th century, but mostly in the 19th century, um, when European naturalists start to become interested in this phenomenon. And I kind of take it through um, the early Cold War, uh, when, you know, uh, frozen earth acquired um, almost geopolitical significance because there was a need to, you know, build military infrastructure in, you know, the Arctic regions. So uh, over the course of this, you know, 100 years or so, 120 years, um, there were different understandings of frozen earth, and sometimes they clashed with each other, and scientists had debates, sometimes very very bitter debates about, you know, whether what what this phenomenon was, you know, was it earth or was it ice? Was it a physical structure? Was it an aggregate structure? Or was it really more of a condition or a process or a space or an envelope? And, and there were, there were, there was a multiplicity of understandings of frozen earth. And that's part of what I am focusing on in this, in this book. Yeah. Right. I thank you. And so how did you arrange your chapters in the book? How did you choose your chapters on mapping, building, defining, adapting, translating, and resurrecting? I'm very curious about that, the arrangement and organization of your chapters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, I, I sort of constructed this metaphor. You know, the, the title of the book is The Life of Permafrost, and I I sort of imagined um, permafrost as kind of moving different through different phases, um, like an insect, you know, like a butterfly, right? So there's like a an egg stage, and then the larval phase, and then a pupil phase, and an adult phase, and and these chapters focus on different sort of phases in the life of of permafrost. And in each of these phases, you know, permafrost, well, what we know today as permafrost was known by different names, you know. So in the 19th century, in the um, kind of the egg phase, you know, it was it was a German expressions, you know, Bowden ice or ice Bowden. Um, and then in the next stage in the um, in the kind of larval stage, it, it got these kind of Russian names like Mirzlata. Um, and then in the kind of, you know, pupil stage, it started kind of crystallizing a, li- a little bit as Vietnam Mirzlata during the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s. And then in the adult phase, it became permafrost um, when, you know, American scientists and engineers translated these Russian expressions into English. And so, so um, so the chapters, you know, both center on different scientific practices, you know, as you were saying, uh, mapping, building, defining, adapting, and translating, but it's also uh, focusing on different phases in the so-called life of permafrost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And where did your research take you exactly? Where did you end up 
finding sources and doing research in, in particular in Russia? And how did you get there and, and what were you looking for? Um, so I, in terms of my sources, yes. Um, so I was looking a lot at both published and unpublished writings by scientists. So, you know, this could be, you know, expedition reports, um, they could be letters, correspondence between scientists, um, articles from scientific journals, um, works of popular science, um, and also, you know, documents from like scientific institutions like, you know, the Institute for Frozen Earth Science in the Soviet Union. And um, so I traveled to, I did a lot of work in the archive of the Russian Academy of Sciences in Moscow. Um, that was a really great um, repository because they had the documents of the Institute for Frozen Earth Science. Um, and then I also did quite a bit of work in the Russian State Archive of the Economy because part of the papers of that institute, you know, back when it was a it was known as a commission and then a committee, um, it was in the kind of uh, state archive. So there, were, those are the kind of two main archives for digging into um, the evolution of this institute in the Soviet Union. Um, and then I also um, did some work at the local studies museum in Saransk, uh, which is, you know, kind of this more, <laughs> yeah, provincial town. But that's where one of the main characters of the book, uh, Mikhail Sumgin, um, you know, his papers were located in the museum there. And so I, you know, he's from that region. And so um, I did some work there. And then I also spent some time in Yakutsk, which is where the Melnikov Permafrost Institute is located. And they had a nice library that I, I could use to kind of access some more, you know, rare published sources on frozen earth. Yeah. I, I have to start, Peyi, because I, I'm so curious about maps with, with your first chapter on mapping. So did you find um, a lot of maps of frozen earth? I, I know there's some very beautiful maps that you include, um, some by Germans and some by Poles. So how could you um, describe those? Where did you find them and, and what are what are they like descriptively? Um, so if I hear you correctly, you're asking about the maps in chapter one? Yeah, so Carl Ernst von Baer uh, and some uh, of the others, right? Yeah, Leonard Yachevsky, yes. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so yeah, let's see. How did I come across? I mean, Carl Ernst von Baer's map I first encountered in um, the published work of this um, Estonian geographer, Erki Tomik Sar, who's been a wonderful resource, and he's kind of a, an expert on um, bear. And um, he, Tomik Sar, um, wrote a dissertation uh, focusing on geographical thought, the geographical thought of Carlens von Bear. And he talked about how, you know, bear produced the first map of frozen earth. And so I um, became curious about this map. Um, on the other hand, I think in the course of my research, I also came across this other map by Leonard Yachevsky, who is a, a well, Polish-Russian um, geologist in the 19th century. And I was struck by how different these maps looked <laughs> from each other. Like Carlos von Baer's map, it's it's kind of got layers, it's got shading. Um, and and Yachevsky's map is just like lines, <laughs> like, like it kind of, you know, and, and, and I was like, wow, how is it that this phenomenon is represented in such different ways? And 
and I, and in order to understand, you know, why they represented it so differently, I had to dig into what they understood frozen earth to be. And, you know, Bear, he kind of, you know, promoted these two expressions to kind of, you know, he named frozen earth with two expressions. One was Bowdoin ice and the other was ice Bowdoin. And they actually had very distinct meanings for him. You know, Bowdoin ice referred to the substance of ice and he was interested in the substance of ice in the ground. Um, but ice Bowdoin referred to more of a space. It wasn't like a, a an actual substance, but it was like a realm, a realm of the earth where, you know, Bowdoin ice could be found in its kind of perpetual form, you know, lasting for many years. And so, um, Bear and and so the different layers of on Bear's map represent you know Bowdoin ice and ice Bowdoin like these two different um, uh, concepts that he was putting forth, but Yachevsky's map, <laughs> um, well Yachevsky's map is based on the ideas of um, Alexander von Middendorf you know who was a protege of of Bear's but kind of kind of took but didn't actually have the same idea of frozen earth as Bear, um, you know. Middendorf really fixated on this idea, this idea of ice Bowden, and and he he conceived of frozen earth as the substance of the earth itself, you know, the the soil, the ground, the rock, um, and moreover, he defined it on the basis of temperature, um, like with you know that you know ground that has a negative temperature, um, and so you know. Yachevsky took that idea and said, okay, if, if it's it's ground on the basis of temperature, then we can take these kind of isotherms and we can kind of take what we know about levels of pre precipitation and snow and kind of, you know, trace the outlines of this, this structure, this physical aggregate structure that known as frozen earth, you know, ice Bowden. Um, and so, you know, they're really kind of distinct approaches to understanding frozen earth bear who's interested in kind of the substance of ice and interested in kind of this envelope or space and then middendorf and then yachevsky kind of conceiving it more as actual soil or rock or you know the ground the earth yeah if you if you could conceptualize the shift in in this epistemology and ontology in the history of science and permafrost what what happens among these men of science in the late czarist period? Uh huh. So if I heard you correctly, um, so yes, like, so you know we've been talking about Bear and Minendorf, and they were kind of really interested in kind of natural history, and um, uh, you know, yeah, questions of natural history. But in the late nineteenth century and early twentieth century, another motivation for studying Earth, frozen Earth emerged, which was you know, engineering, construction, <laughs> and, um, you know, the Trans-Siberian Railroad, you know, built in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it runs through regions with frozen earth. And it, frozen earth turned out to pose all sorts of challenges for construction, you know, railroad beds, road beds would kind of deform, um, you know, you know, railroad depots, buildings would kind of start to sink. Um, when the earth when the earth thawed beneath beneath it and so um there was this new motivation for for studying frozen earth and this motivation only intensified um from the late imperial to the soviet period because the soviets you know had a very ambitious program for you know industrializing modernizing quote unquote um siberia so um uh the one of the main characters of the book Mihal Sumgin, he actually got his start studying frozen earth 
in this context, you know, in the context of the construction of the Siberian Railroad, um, in the con in the context of you know the five year plans in the, in the Soviet Union. So, um, and he was a very interesting character too. I mean, he only wound up in Siberia because, you know, he had been a revolutionary. He had been a part of the Socialist Revolutionary Party. Had you know got kicked out of St. Petersburg University for participating in protests and was like you know exiled multiple times and ended up in Siberia and. Um, and then got it, you know, got kind of um, roped into the work of the Tsarist Resettlement Administration, which was all about studying the soil in order to evaluate it for, you know, development, you know, agriculture, construction, things like that. Um, and so he was very immersed in this this environment, and 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 that imperative, that engineering imperative, I argue, shaped his particular conception of frozen earth that is ours today. You know, this idea that it's ground with a negative temperature that lasts for two years or more. I mean, it's a very peculiar <laughs> definition. It builds a little bit on Middendorf, of course, but, um, you know, there's also, um, you know, he kind of adds the kind of two years idea, uh, which, you know, becomes a bit controversial because people are like, oh, Vietna eternal means like two years. That's very strange. Um, and then he, and he, he was also the one who promoted Vietnam specifically as the term, you know, um, because there were other ways of, of perhaps talking about it. Yeah. 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 He, but yeah, but he kind of thought it was very poetic, you know, it was of the people and, you know, this is, this also reflects a little bit his personal background, his political background, you know, as a populist. Right. I, and yeah. I want, I wonder um, if you could talk, a little bit about Sumgin and his rivals. So I, you have this great chapter about Mikhail Sumgin and Parchomenko, uh, who, who seems to be his antagonist. Um, and and they, they seem to have very different philosophical ideas as well as um, political approaches. I mean, it, it seems so fundamental in their debates and in their differences through the 1920s and 1930s. So could you introduce our li our listeners to to Sumgin and maybe Parchomenko and and others as as you see fit? I know that Sumgin was a social revolutionary, right? But uh, who who were who were these men, and what were their what were their clashes, and what were their differences? Yeah. So um, <laughs> so Sumgin, I mean, he's known today as kind of like you know the founder of permafrost science, and you know I mentioned that our conception of permafrost today really comes from him um, and and the definition that he kind of um, put forth in his monograph that was published in 1927 and that he kind of promulgated through Soviet, you know, popular science publications and textbooks and all that. Um, but his was not the only conception of frozen earth, you know, as we just as we were just talking about, it's a very peculiar definition. You know, Parchomenko was um, another Soviet scientist. Um, he was not a revolutionary, um, but he um, at some point ended up in um, the Irkutsk area and was doing kind of surveying work in the 1920s and got interested in this phenomenon as well. And um, Parchomenko was trained as a geographer and he was really interested in um, complexes, you know, not look, looking at how um, yeah, right, how right. The different elements of a geographical region were related to each other and connected to each other. And he he really approached frozen earth or, you know, as well in two ways. Like one, this word, Mirzlata, um, he understood it not as a, a substance or 
a, a material object, but rather as a process, a process of freezing. And and the actual you know substance of frozen earth he called cryophilic rocks, mm-hmm. um, which were rocks that you know contained cryophilic minerals, um, meaning like minerals that um, uh, you know that 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 you know could that froze you know that could freeze, um, and and so he you know he was just really frustrated and then and so he was really frustrated with. Um, Sumgin's definitions, which he thought made no sense. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. this idea of ground, he thought, obscured the particular material composition of this, this substance. You know, it was about rock. It was about cryophilic minerals. It wasn't just about ground. Right? Ground is this very all-encompassing, like, almost like engineering concept. And, and Parhomenko thought, you know, it was very inadequate to describing this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, and also temperature, right? De- defining frozen earth on the basis of temperature you know, having a negative temperature to Parhomenko didn't make sense because he's like, well, you know, water in nature does not freeze at zero degrees um, because of all the impurities. And and so what we really need to look at is the phase change and the kind of physical material transformation, the hardening of this substance, um, rather than like some arbitrary thing like a negative temperature. Um, and then in terms of, you know, two years, well, he just thought that was very, <laughs> like, it, it didn't especially when paired with this concept of Vyeshna really didn't make a lot of sense to him. You know, to him, um, you know, there was a time when frozen earth did not exist and there's a time when it did and it may disappear. I mean, there's nothing particularly eternal about it. Um, and so, yeah. And, and so their debates, you know, they were, they were intellectual debates, but they were also, you know, personal animosities. I mean, Sumgin, he was able to kind of have this position in the Academy of Sciences. And this was a time when the Academy of Sciences, you know, under kind of Soviet patronage was really expanding and becoming really important um, organization for, for science. And so Sumgin kind of, you know, was able to become the deputy director of this commission, then which turned into a committee, which turned into an institute. And then Sir Parhomenko wasn't really in this circle as much. And, and 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 moreover, you know, you you brought up the idea of epistemological differences. I mean, so at this time, you know, Soviet science, um, well, it 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 had to kind of wrestle with the the ideology of the state at the time. You know, Marxism-Leninism, you know, dialectical materialism, and and both Sumgin and Parhomenko were you know engaging with dialectical materialism. Um, not simply as an ideology, but as, also an, as an epistemology, but differently. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Parhomenko was really interested in this idea of, you know, um, the, the the dialectic, the the exchange and opposition of different forces, kind of on a molecular level, you know, and how how frozen Earth engages in interactions with its environment. And so, again, kind of took this idea of theory and practice. You know, the, the idea in the Soviet Union that you know science should um, uh, have kind of practical uses and 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 um, serve the the state and the economy and and the military, and so you know his engineering kind of focused approach of frozen earth really fit that aspect of dialectic materialism, whereas Parhomenko was taking it more seriously as an epistemology, like how do we actually apply dialectic materialism to understanding the formation and the evolution of frozen earth? Yeah, and so they they had very different. Um, understandings of what dialectical materialism means and and how you can apply it to science. Right. Could could you and I am very curious 
Payee, to ask you about your understanding of institutions, because I, you know, when historians tend to think about science wars, they they think following the work of Ethan Pollack and others about the period of, of high Stalinism. But from your book, one thing that I, I learned that seems so important is the marginalization of scientists from institutions. I mean, there, there seems to be a kind of moment in time in the NEP period, but maybe even into the 1930s, where there are some central institutions with big personalities, and then there are other institutions where people like Parchomenko get marginalized. And, and I wonder if you, if you could give our um, audience and, and the readers of your book a bigger understanding of this. Which, which institutions do you see with this study of permafrost, not only as, as, an, as an eternal thing, which do you see are central and, and which are sort of marginal into the marginalized subdisciplines of, of, of the sciences here, geology and climatology and so forth? I hope I'm clear with my question. It's really a question about institutions and, and these individuals, which are central and which are marginal. Mm-hmm. Um, if I kind of understand correctly. Um, well, I guess I really focus on, um, I mean, as I was saying, mentioning before, the Academy of Science, I mean, you know, Alexander Vucinich called it an empire of knowledge, right? And he really focused on um, uh, the Academy of Sciences in the Soviet period. And so, you know, I mean, sometimes this could be even as mundane as where are the meetings being held when they have terminology debates? <laughs> you know, like that's it. Like, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, if it's if the Academy of Sciences is in Leningrad, and you know, you know, Parhomenko is working for a state agency in Moscow, and they're having this big debate about terminology in Leningrad, and like Parhomenko finds out a bit late and can't get like tickets on a train to go. I mean, <laughs> you know, he's yes. just kind of out right. there and. And so, I mean, yeah, it comes down to sometimes these very mundane things, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the 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 difference even you know between you know center versus being a little bit more marginalized, yeah. Right. So, um, what happens then through the Stalin period as the first five-year plan is embraced? What? How does that change permafrostology and permafrost studies? Is is there a shift mm-hmm. as you find as you find it in the Marxism Leninism of the twenties to the thirties in some of these institutes and as you say in the epistemolo- epistemological understanding of permafrost what what happens to these men of applied science okay mm-hmm. yeah well they get requests from all these um, state agencies that are doing construction <laughs> to like, you know, what do we do? Um, you know, what, um, you know, h- what recommendations can you make for construction so that, you know, our roadbeds and factories and buildings do not sink and deform. And um, there are all these, you know, requests being made of frozen earth scientists to participate in various um, construction um, projects um, and development projects in, you know, along the Baikal Moore mainline, for example, also in the city of Yakutsk with the kind of building up of, you know, these cities, um, subarctic and arctic cities. Um, so they're very much um, immersed in the, 
you know, the so-called, <laughs> you know, the conquest of nature, uh, the struggle with nature. And at the same time, you know, they're trying to communicate the importance of their work to, you know, Soviet citizens more generally to the state so that they can have funding for their work. And um, I argue that this, this period, I mean, the, the cultural context of this time, you know, when the idea of the struggle with nature is so prominent in Soviet propaganda, um, that this also shapes frozen earth. I mean, understandings of frozen earth encourages people to see it as a, a physical object, you know, a, you know, um, a physical obstacle to be conquered um, rather than something more nebulous like a, a condition or a process or, you know, a, a, an envelope that you can't really visualize and struggle against. Um, and and it's also at this time that, you know, this ex particular expression, eternal frozen earth, so to speak, um, really becomes popularized. And, yes, um, yes, and, and, I see and, that. And, it, um, and it's really interesting because Vietnam, you know, it's this idea of, 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 you know, eternal, it's like nature as, as static, as, mm -hmm. um, as unchanging, whereas, you know, Soviet construction was about moving forward. And, and, and it's an interesting contrast, you know, kind of conquering nature, struggling against nature, um, and also struggling against natural time, you know, in order to accelerate um, development um, in, you know, to kind of toward communism, right. And so, um, the, the, the expression Vietnam Rezata has a particular cultural resonance as well um, at this time. Right. Yeah. And and how does this travel to the United States and, and really to North America in a Cold War context? And, and maybe even before the Second World War, the Great Patriotic War is over, you, you have this in your later chapters, um, which are so fascinating to you because um, you mentioned again and again about the inexactness of the translation of the definition of permafrost uh, from a Russian and Soviet context into the American one. So th this is really a question for you about the moment forward from 1943 and who becomes involved in these American-Soviet exchanges and, and American-Soviet science right. society. Yeah. So, um, so the, person who coins permafrost is um, a person named Seaman Mueller, who was a, you know, Russian born emigre to the United States. And, um, and he was a geologist, he worked at um, Stanford University. And, you know, his knowledge of Russian became really important during the Second World War, as the United States was um, building, you know, airfields in Alaska, um, which later, you know, became involved in doing some of the lend-lease exchanges with the Soviet Union. So um, there was all of a sudden this imperative to build infrastructure on frozen earth in Alaska. And, um, you know, Seema Mueller, I mean, it became known to the, you know, the USGS that was involved in this work that the Soviets had written a lot about it. A lot of, a lot of it, the literature was in Russian and the Russians had been tackling some of these um problems in the 1930s. And so Seaman Mueller was hired to translate and to synthesize some of that Russian language literature. And so he created or he published, well, it was initially um, more like a, a kind of classified um, publication, permafrost and permanently uh, permafrost or permanently frozen ground and related engineering problems. And so he, you know, 
cited the work of Sumgin and other Soviet scientists, and, and he coined the expression permafrost, parentheses, or permanently frozen ground, uh, on the basis of Sumgin's term, and he took the same definition, um, ground with a negative temperature that you know sustains negative temp- temperature for two years or more. So um, he, he just you know, adopted it because it was kind of in the literature and, and he maybe wasn't aware of all the debates that have been going on with, with Parhomenko and everything like that. It was, um, you know, because by this time, Sumgin's conception had been more widely propagated. Um, so, so Seaman Mueller just kind of took this, the definition and kind of coined this expression based on a translation of the Russian. Um, but this also sparked you know, disagreement in the U.S. You know, there were geologists in the U.S., um, soil scientists. I mean, I talk about um, this soil scientist named Kirk Bryan, who thought, you know, permafrost, <laughs> like, that's that doesn't make any sense. It's not about frost. It's about the soil. Um, and, you know, it doesn't capture um, the dynamic nature of freezing earth. Um, he kind of advanced, that is, Kirk Bryan advanced a whole different set of of terms like pergelisol um, that that try to capture the process of freezing and the substance itself, as opposed to this, you know, the aggregate structure, ground and like temperature and things like that. Um, so, you know, once again in the U.S., you we see this debate flare up about what is this phenomenon? What do we call it? What is it that interests us about it? Um, but because of the kind of you know, imperative of the time, which was engineering, construction, you know, just like in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, now it's the U.S. in the 1940s. And what's most important is kind of, you know, stable structures, being able to build. And, and and you know, and, and the word permafrost actually gets quickly taken up by certain institutions like the Snow, Ice, and Permafrost Research Establishment um, established by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And so um, the word, you know, kind of gets taken up very quickly um, and without a whole lot of, you know, interest or debate about the, you know, the nitty gritty of like terminology and definitions. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's go, let's go, let's go forward from the 1950s and, and maybe the, the new sciences, things like geocryologia, right? Geo, geocryology. Yeah. So, so this is really interesting too. I mean, so you mentioned earlier, you know, Ethan Pollock's um, work on the the great discussions, you know, that happened in the late 1940s, um, in the context of a, a bit of a hardening of the Cold War and this this renewed pressure for scientists to demonstrate their patriotism and their, you know, their kind of ideological rigor, um, and so there were these great discussions in various fields at the time. I mean, most famously, of course, in in agro, you know, in biology with Lysenko, but there were also a, a lot of discussions taking place. You know, in lots of different scientific disciplines at this time, you know, inspired a bit by these, or pressured a bit by these kind of, um, uh, kind of by the political atmosphere of the time. So, so in the Institute of Frozen Earth Science too, there were debates, um, like you know, our is our science, um, uh, you know, does it does it live up to the rigor? Uh, you know, of of dialectical materialism, does it support the kind of goals of the state? And in the course of these discussions, people start to bring up again, once again, like the, I guess the flaws in 
the conception of frozen earth that Sumgin had put forth and um, and kind of maybe returning to ideas about you know more of a kind of systems thinking approach thinking about exchanges of heat and and, and minerals with you know between different parts of the environment um, and and instead of you know the study of frozen earth it's about the study of the cryolithosome, <laughs> right, which is um, an envelope of the Earth, where um, you'll find um, the freezing of rock, and and so it was. It's a little bit harkening back to Parhomenko, but um, but they didn't really like Shvetsov, who is the new, I guess, up and coming scientist who was advancing this view. Um, he didn't explicitly acknowledge Parhomenko. I mean, he drew on you know, this other, this broader thinking of, this broader tradition of systems thinking in Russian and Soviet science with folks like Bernadsky, um, um, Grigoriev. And so he kind of drew the inspiration from, from them. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it was a, so there were all these, you know, the, the Institute at this time was, was riven by these, these personal animosities, like intellectual debates, um, you know, some people wanting to defend Sumgin's legacy and, and you know, Sumgin as the founder of frozen earth science who had given so much of the, laid so much of the foundations of the field. And then this kind of younger generation led by Shvetsov who's saying, no, we really have to rethink um, what we're, what we mean when we talk about frozen earth. We got to think about it more in terms of this, um, you know, exchanges of heat and, and minerals. Um, yeah. And so, and he called it geocryology. Yeah. And, and it was interesting too, like, you know, geocryology or geocryology in Russian, which which you know is really from Greek Greek roots, and so in English we can call it geocryology. Um, that was part of you know renaming the field, renaming the discipline was part of um, this idea of putting it on a more kind of rigorous um, theoretical foundations. But at the time, it might be seen as a little bit anti-patriotic, right? You're taking this, you're kind of adopting foreign foreign words instead of, you know, good Russian words like Mirzlata and Mirzlatovyedinye, which was like the science of Mirzlata. And so you see the way kind of the political yeah. environment of the time sort and, of and I, and I have in to scientific ask you debates about too. The climate change question that you bring up in your book, because it, it strikes me as so important as you mentioned, the attention to metaphors. I, I, this is one thing I, I absolutely love about your book, you know, because you trace it back to the life cycle, as we talked about earlier, the egg, larva, pupil, and butterfly stage. And then there, there's almost, as it seems, a laziness maybe about the time bomb metaphor, um, and, and especially concerning climate change, but in a larger question about global warming and, and the emitting of methane gas. Could you talk about that and, and why there seems to be such a fixation in, in the in the Anthropocene, another term, but but why why the time bomb metaphor? It, it seems to even have been picked up by by Greenpeace and, and certainly it it exists in the 21st century. So what is it and how do you understand it in the context of permafrost? Well I mean, I think I think the concern is that you know there's all this um, kind of carbon locked in frozen earth, and you know with global warming as you know this frozen earth thaws, um, 
there's the concern that this carbon will be released, you know, either as carbon dioxide or as methane, and even more alarmingly as methane, um, because methane, you know, traps even more um, heat than carbon dioxide, even though it doesn't last as long in the atmosphere. And so, you know, the 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 concern that the thawing of frozen earth will lead will lead to kind of a catastrophic sudden release of methane um, is something that, you know, yeah, worries people. Certainly worries people. And so. Um, it, it kind of gave rise to these metaphors, you know, of time bomb, um, Arctic methane monster, <laughs> and and these mm-hmm. kinds of um, very scary yeah. and threatening type the of spider, um, right? Of Donna you know, Donna images. Haraway as well, and, right? And and, uh, and others. Go ahead, yeah, yeah, and and so and so on the one hand, I mean, I I understand, you know, it's the hope is that if we kind of communicate the the severity of the problem, you know, maybe people will take it seriously. We can actually take, you know, take action to mitigate global warming. Um, but on the other hand, when I hear things like time bomb or methane monster, you know, this idea that it's hostile, it's like nature that's hostile or scary. I, I kind of wonder whether that's really the most um, productive way mm-hmm. to go about thinking about global warming, you know, that it's not about this external force of nature that's threatening humanity. It's about humanity itself and what we're doing and the choices that we're making. And and can we kind of learn to care and value the environment instead of thinking of it as something to be conquered mm-hmm. or mastered or saved? Um, and and so, um, and so that was, you know, when I, when I think about when I hear things like time bomb and conquering, conquer and mastering and saving. I mean, I think a lot about. Soviet propaganda during the 1930s, which is also about struggle with nature and conquer. And to me, that may not be the um, approach that will actually, um, maybe the approach that we actually need when it comes to addressing global warming. I think it's more about caring, about understanding our connections with the rest yeah. of nature and the exchanges that take place between human and non-human nature instead of right. about conquering or saving it it, it seems very androcentric to begin with right and and i i guess that's that's kind of my big last question for you in asking about the takeaway points for your book and the kind of research that you would like to see in the history of science and technology and and let's Mm -hmm. say in sts so uh, i mean you mentioned the systems thinking approach i think that's incredibly important um, and some of the lost debates about definitions, what, what do you think would be the role for future historians and, and, and historians like you in, in contributing to the debates about climate change and, and permafrost? Hmm. Um, well, if I heard you correctly, um, it's about the takeaways of the book. Um, yeah, I guess I, guess, um, I can think of three. I mean, one, is this idea of of pluralism and understandings of frozen earth like you know seeing it as an aggregate structure that is disappearing or that will you know cause harm um, to to humans is not the only way of thinking about it there's also a way approaching it as like a condition a process an envelope a space that's very intimately connected with the rest of of the planet um, and and you know it's not necessarily about preserving this structure at all costs, you know, even through engineering that may actually, you know, exacerbate global warming. But um, thinking 
more in terms of the, the earth as a whole um, and making room for these other ways of thinking and maybe resurrecting some of these um, other ways of thinking like Bodhanice or Mirslata as a process or, you know, the cryolithosome and geocryology. Um, instead of thinking it as, you know, permafrost, either something to be saved or conquered or, uh, or that is disappearing. Um, and then secondly, I guess in the book, I wanted to show the different influences that politics can have on science. And it's not a, it's not a, it's a multifaceted sort of thing because it's not simply, you know, in, in, in the case of, of my book, it wasn't just that the Soviet state party state pressured scientists to, you know, do like to, to carry out engineering and construction in Siberia. Um, there are also ways in which, you know, party ideology, Marxism, Leninism, dialectical materialism, inspired debate and discussions and new ways of thinking about frozen earth. So it's a very complicated relationship. It's not simply an oppressive one. Um, it can be also a generative one. Um, and then, and, and then finally, I would say, um, the, the idea that language matters, <laughs> the, the metaphors that we use matter, um, the, the terms, scientific terms matter. They, they accrue different meanings over time. They are shaped by society and culture and they in turn shape society and culture and that paying attention to to language is also important um when when talking about yeah um, and and nomenclature debates are are still obviously going on right because you participated in a lot of these scientific uh, scientific debates and and went to their conferences almost like a a fly on the wall right in in certain certain ways are you continuing to do that i mean this is a question for you about your current research and, and what things you're you're interested in and, and writing writing about. So could you give us an idea maybe about your current projects and things you're interested in? Um, are you asking about like next projects? Okay. Yeah. Are you still going to are you still going to conferences about permafrost or oh. are, you, are you doing other things? Am I still going to conferences about permafrost? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Um, um I I haven't. Well, so I joined the U.S. Permafrost Association. I've been and I got and I want to share my work with um, permafrost scientists if they're interested. Um, I I don't know. With COVID, things got a little bit um, disrupted. Um, I had been thinking about going to the International Conference on Permafrost, but I think it's been postponed. Um, but I think I I don't know that I will continue on this very particular topic i mean i'm in the process of just doing a lot of exploratory reading for the next next project um you know so two things that i'm reading about these days are um like indigenous knowledges and indigenous understandings of of the environment um because um it was a it was an aspect of the book that i didn't really get into I wasn't able to get into the book focuses a lot on, you know, Russian and Soviet scientists and not so much on kind of like indigenous perspectives, even though it features a little bit because some of the terminology um, that the Russians picked up were, you know, from like the Saha language and, you know, local languages. So um, kind of interested in a little bit about kind of indigenous perspectives. Um, but the other, I'm also interested in kind of digging into economic history, um, looking at how economic history and environmental history interact and how concepts move from one to the other. Um, so, you know, maybe kind of continuing this, this looking at intellectual history a bit, but 
expanding to include like economic history. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think so far I'm just trying to, to do a lot of exploratory reading. Yeah. Right. Right. And would you recommend books for our listeners, um, both here in new books, Russian and Eurasian studies, and also in environmental history and sustainability mm. studies? I, can you think of others, perhaps two or three authors or books that you might suggest for our listeners? Oh, well, um, let's see. I can, I can recommend, I think, one that I read somewhat recently, um, which was, you know, I mean, this book has been getting lots of, of attention and, and deservedly so Bathsheba DeMuth's Floating Coast um, is, is, you know, a marvelous book. Um, it's about, you know, Russian and Soviet history. It's also about um, U- U.S. history. And, you know, we're looking at Beringia, you know, the Bering Strait world and and brings in, you know, indigenous perspectives as well. So, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful book. Um, and then I'm currently reading um, Maya Peterson's Pipe Dreams, which is about Russian and Soviet water management in Central Asia and really enjoying that too. Um, it's like very learning a lot. Um, it's very thorough and scholarly. Um, and then I'm, I, this book that just came out that I'm really looking forward to reading is by Dina Feinberg. It's about Cold War correspondence. It's about like Soviet and American journalists and uh, during the Cold War. And um, I, I heard um, Dr. Feinberg give a presentation on it, and I, and I got interested in you know Cold War exchanges um, in the course of my own work. So I'm looking forward to reading that book too. Well, I, thank you for for those suggestions. And and you may know we, uh, that I've had Bathsheba and Maya already here on the podcast okay. for New Books Network. So <laughs> um, you're you're in great company, and and those are absolutely marvelous books. I, I'm also eager uh, to read Dr. Feinberg's. Feinberg's book as well. So uh, we are running out of time, and I just wanted to say thank you, uh, Dr. Pei Yichu, for joining us here on the podcast today and talking about your book. And just to mention it again, this is a book out with University of Toronto Press 2021 called The Life of Permafrost, A History of Frozen Earth in Russian and Soviet science. Congratulations to you, Peiyi, again, on the publication of your book. And I'm really eager um, to, to hear from you again in the next projects that you're working on. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. It was fun. And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here at the New Books Network. We'll see you next time.